and adults. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 37, we're going to go ahead and read the entirety of Genesis chapter 37 uh, in preparation for discussing and continuing on our discussion of Christ and the threefold office that he holds of prophet, priest, and king. And in particular, we're looking at the kingly office. And again, just to reiterate, it's been a few weeks since we've been here and had the opportunity to discuss these things. We're looking at these three roles, prophet, priest, and king. And these were roles that God had intended for humanity to fulfill uh, and in His creation. He gave us dominion. Uh, he gave us the responsibility, particularly He gave the responsibility to Adam to teach his family the Word. So Adam acted as a prophet. And then we know that they had the priestly role and that they were able to commune directly with God and, and know God directly. And so, of course, we know sin entered the picture and ended up corrupting our ability to fulfill the roles that God had created us for. And so as a result of that corruption, a result of those things, we see that God has to make a promise that there will be someone who will come and reverse the curse, and in particular that that person would be the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And of course, we know that that anticipates the coming of Christ as Messiah. But what we also recognize is that God is um, progressively revealing. That's the term that theologians use. He is, he is revealing a little bit more and a little bit more each time in Scripture about who Christ is going to be and how He will fulfill those particular roles. And so that's what we've been looking at. And we spent time looking at how the, the prophetic role, we spent time looking at the, at the priestly role, and now we're moving our way through the history of God's people, and particularly the history of Israel, and seeing now the patriarchs as kings. And we've looked at Jacob, we've looked at, we've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Isaac, we've looked at Jacob, and now we're going to spend some time looking at Joseph. And in particular, we're going to find in Joseph a type of who King Jesus is. In fact, in Joseph, we see the kingly office anticipated in, in ways that we don't see in any of the other patriarchs. So look with me, Genesis chapter 37. We're going to read um, the entire passage here. And this is a familiar passage, it's a familiar story, uh, but we're going to be referencing it throughout as we make connections between how Joseph's story and Jesus' story are very similar. So look with me, Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? You see the emphasis on the kingly office here? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and Eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. 
So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then many night traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's seek God's face briefly. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this story that sees such injustice, such tragedy. And yet, Father, we know that you are in control of all things. And Joseph himself confessed and rested in your control of these circumstances. And so we have much to learn from this story, but particularly, Lord, may we see the glory of Christ as Joseph points forward as a type of who your Son, our Savior, will truly be. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. So, one thing I think that's important to establish from the outset is that Joseph is treated in Scripture as a patriarch. And we've discussed this a little bit. Again, we're looking at the the patriarchs as kings. And we saw Abraham as he was a, a ruler of his family. And that family was not just him and his wife and his children, but there were also a great number of others involved with that, including his nephew, um, Lot. And so he exercised dominion and rule, and he actually waged war and was recognized as a king in the valley of the kings. We saw that particular aspect of Abraham's life. We saw the same thing with Isaac and the same thing with Jacob. And particularly with Jacob, God changes Jacob's name to Israel, making him the ruler of this new nation. As he has 12 sons, those 12 sons are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. But His one son, Joseph, does not receive a blessing as a son, but rather his sons receive the blessing from Jacob or from Israel. And so we see Joseph himself sort of functioning side by side with his father, 
Jacob or Israel as a patriarch. So the final patriarch who functioned as a king is Joseph. Now what we find in Joseph's life is a life of paradoxes and seemingly frustrated plans. I think besides Job, the adversities that Joseph had to face were really not surmounted or were not greater than anyone else but Job or the Lord Jesus himself. And as God is working with his people, yet he's bringing Joseph through immense troubles and immense difficulties to accomplish his purpose. And what we actually see in Joseph is a preview of how he is going to provide redemption in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews talks about how God has given us these stories in the Old Testament, these things that actually happened for a purpose, to be examples to us. And that example is an example not to point us to say, let's try to dare to be a Daniel, or let's try to seek to be like Joseph. Now, while God used them in great ways, these men would tell you, don't try to be like us, try to be like Jesus. Their call is that they show what Christ-likeness look like, looks like, and then they call us not to look to them, but to look to Christ. And so what we see in Scripture is these lives shown and lived for us so that we can see what it means to be Christ-like. And so what we find here with Joseph is a preview of who the Messiah is going to be. Now, we're going to look at a number of different things, and in particular, we're going to look at, at the similarities between Joseph's life and, uh, and Jesus' life. But um, I think it's important to see how Moses, in particular, is arranging Joseph's story to make this point. In closing Genesis, Moses is displaying that God's redemptive purposes are moving forward. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. The humanity has been corrupted by sin. This is the answer to why there are problems in this world. Sin. How are we going to fix it? And we already know that we can't fix it ourselves. Adam and Eve tried to do that. They sewed together fig leaves, and that was not enough. They still had shame before the Lord. They needed someone to come and to reconcile them with God. And so in Genesis 3.15, God gives a prophecy that there will be someone who will come who will be bruised on his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. This one who will turn back the curse that's going to be pronounced on Adam and Eve. This curse reverser is promised in Genesis 3.15. Now, as we look through the rest of Genesis, we see that there are concerns about if this is really going to come true. We see that, that Eve actually finds her thought that Cain is going to be the one. I've gotten, a, I've gotten a child, I've gotten a son with help of the Lord. And the way that that's worded in the original may indicate that she thought Cain was going to be the Messiah. But yet, what did Cain end up being? A murderer. We see that as time progresses and we see things going forward, we come to the time of Noah. And instead of humanity being a people that are seeking, to recon- seeking reconciliation with God... Every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. And so God wipes them out with the flood. And yet we see, is this this it? Has God given up on this plan? But yet he chooses to save Noah and his family. And then we see that God has chosen to reveal that it is going to be through Abraham and his seed in which all the nations of the earth will find blessing. And so we come to the end of Genesis and we see these, this family of Israel bickering, fighting, hating their brother, and seeking to kill him. And yet, as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, Moses makes it abundantly clear. And of course, we're going to get into some of this. We're not going to get into all of this tonight. But Moses makes it abundantly clear that God's people are preserved from a great famine that's coming into the land because they go down to Egypt. And there, because of Joseph and his exercise of dominion, Israel is now kept safe. Now, it's interesting, at the 
beginning of Genesis, particularly in Genesis chapter 4, we see Moses beginning with a brother unjustly killing his brother, Cain and Abel. And we see that same thing seemingly working its way out here again. What are brothers doing to their brother? Rising up against him, wanting to kill him. But actually, when we come to the end of the story of Joseph, we find that Genesis ends with brothers who sought to kill their brother, finding forgiveness from their brother. This contrast sets up anticipation of what the promised curse reverser will be like. Scriptures tell us that Jesus came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. And we see that same thing here with Joseph. And yet, Christ takes those who do not receive Him and by His grace transforms us so that we can now receive Him and we can find forgiveness in the One in whom we spurned. So we see this this clear comparison being set up as, as Moses contrasts Cain and Abel with Joseph and his brothers. It's even interesting, as God speaks to Cain, He tells Cain, your brother's blood cries from the earth for your judgment. But with Joseph, the brothers come and they feel like as they come before Him that they're going to be condemned. And Joseph runs to them with tears in his eyes and embraces them as his brothers. And the Scriptures tell us amazingly that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, what? Brothers. So there's a great contrast and a great hope that Moses sets up at the end of Genesis. Now, it's also important to note that no sinful actions of Joseph are mentioned in the narrative. Now, We know that Joseph wasn't perfect. Only one person has been perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. But it is is not, it's something we shouldn't just overlook, that we don't see anything negatively said about Joseph. Now, you may be objecting, you're saying, wasn't he an arrogant little pompous guy with his brothers? Well, we can read it that way, or we can also read it in the sense that Joseph is fulfilling the prophetic role. God gave him dreams. He didn't give him those dreams just to keep it to himself. He gave it to reveal it to his people. So when Joseph spoke those dreams, he was speaking as a prophet. Now, I know I I don't have this, this experience myself because I was an only child. And I was, of course, a perfect only child. And I never had any, any problems or anything like that. So I didn't have brothers or sisters to, to rib me or to, to deal with in that, in that. And I was not a perfect only child. Um, despite what I insist, my parents would have another word to say about that. But I think sometimes what happens is, especially if you've grown up with brothers and sisters, you can read these words and you can think, nah, 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 I'm going to be greater than you. Like you read in your experience to what Joseph is saying. And I don't think that that really is the way we should look at this. Joseph is just given the word of the Lord, and he had a duty to give the word of the Lord. And the problem was not with the content of what God had promised. The problem was within the hearts of his brothers. And even with his father, they were the ones that looked with jealousy on him. Is God not free to do what he wants to? Yes. And so there's a, there's a, there's a lot of application there that we could bring in, but I just say... Very particularly, we need to recognize that we're not like the, um, the older brother of the prodigal. That we look jealously on the blessings of God to others. Like we see Joseph's brothers doing. So, so we don't, and again, nowhere in that we see Jacob rebuking Joseph, but nowhere in the narrative do we see anything said that Joseph did something wrong. Now again, Joseph was not perfect. We understand that. He was a human being. He is not, Joseph is not the Messiah. But Moses may very well be showing us and doing this purposely to show us what the Messiah is going to be like. And again, we also find in Joseph a fulfillment of these three roles, prophet, priest, and king, that God has given to humanity. Joseph is a prophet. 
in his interpretation of dreams. What's interesting is God gives Joseph dreams, but he doesn't stop there with the dreams, does he? Joseph continues to interpret dreams as a prophet to those who he's in jail with. And so Joseph fulfills this role of taking the word of the Lord and proclaiming it as God called him to do. We see Joseph particularly acting as a priest personally with the reconciliation and restoration he gives to his brothers. You know, if you think about what Joseph does there, did his brothers deserve that reconciliation? No. I mean, Joseph is placed into a position where he can exact immense vengeance on what his brothers had done. His brothers treated him terribly. They wanted to kill him. You end up having Reuben begging for his life. And finally, the brothers relent. And then, and then I think they relent because Judah says, you know what, we can get some profit in this. Let's sell our brother into slavery. Great family, right? And again, remember, this is the family from which God has promised the curse reverser to come from. And so we see Joseph, where he has the opportunity to exact vengeance, he withholds that vengeance. He's not only just merciful to them, he's gracious. He gives them food. He provides for their needs. They're undeserving of these things, and yet Joseph shows them favor as he's in a position to do so. And then, of course, we see him as a king. And what's interesting with Joseph is we see him as a king, not just over Israel, but over a heathen nation, over Egypt. Remember the promise made to Abraham, from your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. What does Joseph end up doing in Egypt? He blesses Egypt. He prepares for this famine by taking and storing this food up. And it's just amazing to see how God is working even through Joseph to be a blessing to the nations. And so we see prophet, priest, and king displayed in who Joseph is and particularly how he fulfills these roles. Now, there are lots of similarities between Joseph and Jesus. And what we're going to talk about is how Joseph is a type. So that's a, a technical theological term. That's used. It's used in the New Testament, but, um, but it's a term that's used to refer to something that points to a greater reality. So a type is something that exhibits certain aspects of the greater reality. And in this, state, in this situation, Joseph is the type showing us the greater reality who is Jesus. And, and what, what God does to do this is He is working in history to proclaim to all the world, this is what Messiah will be like. What type of similarities do we find? Well, we see, first of all, that both Joseph and Christ are the beloved sons of their father. Again, we saw in Genesis 37, verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Joseph had more love from Jacob than any of his other brothers did. Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph most. Now, we know from Parenting 101 You don't have favorites among your kids. That's not a good thing to do because what does it it foster among those kids? Jealousy, rivalry, which we see happening here. So again, if if we're going to place blame on Joseph for this, really we need to look at at, at that type of interaction. Really the, the blame falls on Joseph or on Jacob and the way he treated Joseph. But it's also important for us to recognize this because Do you know that God does not love everything in this universe equally? There is someone who He loves more than anyone else. It is His Son. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, Christ is is baptized. He comes up from the waters, 
And notice what the Father says. This is my, not just my son, this is my what? Beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. Now, I think we have, a, we have a tendency and a temptation to want to say, well, God loves us more than anything else in this world. But we're missing the point if we start there. Because God does love His people more than anything else in this universe. But He loves them because they are in Jesus Christ. That's why, I mean, if you understand what Jesus says in John 17, that we would have, that the love of the Father that, has, that He has for the Son would be in us. What that means then is that all those who are united to Christ by faith... God looks down and says, you are beloved. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. That becomes the key to recognizing this love. So we see this this comparison, this, this similarity as Israel loved Joseph most, so the father loved the son most. We also see that both were prophesied to be kings. Again, Genesis 37, 5 through 8, Joseph has these dreams. Hear the dream that I dreamed. We were binding sheaves in the field. Behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And the implication there, it's interesting, Joseph doesn't even have to interpret the dream for his brothers. They know. They say, are you to reign over me, us? Who do you think you are, Joseph? We see elsewhere, he talks about the sun and the moon and, the, and, and 12 stars bowing, or 11 stars bowing down to him. And he's like, are, are my parents, my parents and my brothers are going to bow down to me. Clear prophecy that, that he would be a king, that he would rule over his family. The same thing is said of Christ in Luke chapter 1. The announcement made to Mary, you're, you're going to conceive. You're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And it will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father David. And he will reign over what? The house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then Mary throws up reality, at least from her perspective. How is this going to be since I'm a virgin? And then we know the promise of the virgin birth comes about. So both Joseph and Christ are the beloved sons of their fathers. Both Joseph and Christ are prophesied to be kings. Both were rejected by their own people. And specifically by their own brothers. We see in Genesis 37 that when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, what did they do? They hated him even more. What about Jesus? He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. What is the fruit of hatred? What does the Bible tell us the fruit of hatred is? It's what? Jealousy. But what, what's the action that, ha- that drives hatred? What do we do in hatred? We kill. Murder. Jesus came to his own, and it is remarkable that in one week as he walks into Jerusalem triumphantly, and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Less than a week later, what are they crying? 
crucify him. Christ came to his own and his own rejected him and hated him so much so that they wanted him dead. And the same thing happens with Joseph. We also see here in John 7 verse 5 that even Christ's own brothers did not believe in him. You know, we, we, we like to think that our families are the place where we're the safest, right? We want to know that we can go to our families and there we will be accepted, there we will be loved, there we will be cherished. That's what every parent wants to create for their children, an environment where their children are going to be accepted and loved. Christ's own family, his own brothers, rejected him. Just as Joseph's own family, his own brothers, rejected him. We find, furthermore, that both left an exalted status and became slaves. In Genesis 37, again, as we've read, they sat down to eat, and as they sat down, they looked up, and here comes the caravan of the Ishmaelites. Let's go ahead and Judah says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? We don't make anything out of it. Let's sell him off. Let our hand, and then he, I, I love how he tries to, tries to act like he's, be, he's thinking of Joseph's best interest. Let us not have our hand be against him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Let's just sell him into slavery. You see how you, see, you, see how you can be self-righteous in the midst of doing immense evil? We see that here with Judah. And so we know Joseph is sent and he is sold off as a slave. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Being born in the likeness of men. We see that both were unjustly accused of sin and punished for it. We see this in Genesis 39, 19 through 20. Again, this is the episode with Potiphar's wife. So Joseph is sold into slavery. He is sold to the house of Potiphar, who was a captain of Pharaoh. And there he, a man who seeks to fear the Lord and who the Lord is with, begins to gain notoriety. He begins to work his way up, and now he's a trusted man. In Potiphar's house. He's no longer really considered a slave. He's more, almost considered like a son to Potiphar. And Joseph would have been a, a strong, attractive young man. And Potiphar's wife comes in and lays a hold of his garments. And asks him to do unthinkable things that would sin against God and against his master. And he runs out of the household leaving his cloak behind. And Potiphar's wife comes to Potiphar and makes up this story that Joseph forced himself upon her. And notice what happens. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoken, spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. Joseph did the right thing. He fleed. He fled youthful lusts. And Joseph's master takes him and puts him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. What's interesting is the way that it's repeated multiple times here. He put him into prison, the place where the prisoners were, and he was there in prison. Where did he end up? Prison. Had he done anything wrong? No. And our Savior is taken before a mockery of a trial before the chief priests and scribes. He's brought before a heathen ruler, Pilate. And Pilate tries to release him. He says over and over again, this man has done nothing deserving of death. And yet he still is crucified. And after he dies, 
Luke records for us that there was a centurion standing by, and when he saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was what? Innocent. We also see, and this was something that I I had never put together, they both were sold, and what was the price of their sale? They were sold for what? Silver. They both were sold for silver. In Genesis 37, 28, the Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Judas, who was a disciple of Christ, goes to the chief priests and the Pharisees and says, What? Will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him what? 30 pieces of silver. We see that there are similarities even between Joseph and Jesus in their suffering. Both were stripped of their clothing. When Joseph came to his brothers, they found him. Well, guess what? The first thing they laid a hold of was that coat of many colors, and they ripped it off his body. The robe of many colors that is wore. he wore. Jesus, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Both were bound. We see in Genesis 39, 30, that He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Not just a binding, but a very difficult, very terrible binding. This is what the psalmist tells us about Joseph. And Jesus, we know, he is bound and led away from the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees to be delivered over to Pilate, the governor. Both, and this is really even interesting, the stories of Jesus and the stories of Joseph, as they are condemned, they're both condemned with how many criminals? Two criminals. Both were condemned with two criminals, and what's amazing is one of those criminals lives and the other perishes. In Genesis 40, 20 through 22, we see on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, the head of the chief baker among his and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So the the cupbearer and the baker, guess where they were? In jail with Joseph. They had dreams. And Joseph said, these dreams mean that one of you is going to live and one of you is going to die. And in this instance, what's it better to be, a cupbearer or a baker? A baker. I'm sorry, the cupbearer, not the baker. What does he do? He restores the chief cupbearer to his position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But what did he do with the chief baker? He hanged him as Joseph had interpreted their dreams. In Luke chapter 23, we see that there was one of the criminals who was hanged with Christ railed at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds? But this man has done nothing wrong. And then this man who rebuked The other thief looks to Christ and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, how long is he going to have to wait to be in paradise? Just a few more hours, because that very day he would be with Christ in paradise. So, lots of similarities in the lives of Christ and Joseph. And finally, we see that both Joseph and Jesus, Jesus act as Redeemer kings. We find that Jesus 
is humiliated. Joseph is humiliated. But did Joseph stay in the prison? No. The word came finally, even though the the cupbearer forgot about him. And then he's like, oh yeah, I was supposed to tell you about Joseph. And Joseph is exalted to a place where he is second in command to Pharaoh himself in all of Egypt. Was Christ exalted after his humiliation? Yes. He's exalted in heaven today and he has a name above every name. Both offered reconciliation to those who persecuted them. Joseph showing that forgiveness and mercy to his brothers as he embraces them again. Jesus, even as the hateful Roman soldiers are nailing him to the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Both provided innumerable blessings to their people. We know that Joseph is able to provide for his brothers not just a ration that a regular Egyptian would get, but they get the best of the best rations because of who Joseph is. They're actually given a place, a a land in Egypt, a bountiful land where they're able to live. They're provided with all sorts of numbers of blessings from heathen Egyptians. And so it is for us, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, that if we're in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Him. And what we find is that both of them become the basis for a unified people. Israel as a nation emerges because of what Joseph does. And guess what happens after Christ ascends into heaven and the Spirit comes? The church emerges as an entity because of what Christ did. So, Joseph is a type of Christ. We, you know, we know the story well, and there's so many things that we could say about it. But in, in conclusion, I just want to draw a couple things to bear, and then we can take these things and be encouraged by them throughout this week. The first thing we see is that Joseph is a great example of what Christ will do as king. What is amazing is that Joseph is spurned by those whom he loves the most, And each and every one of us, the Bible tells us, are alienated from God. We are strangers to Him. We are His enemies apart from God's grace. Every single person on the face of this planet is an enemy of God. But God's grace is such that He takes enemies and turns them into His children. And Joseph does and shows the same thing and that those who were his enemies, he embraces as his family. It's a wonderful hope for us that in Christ we are no longer seen as enemies. We are seen as children of our heavenly king. The scripture tells us that the spirit is given to us so we can cry out, Abba, Father. And so we see in Joseph, as he provides reconciliation and love and forgiveness to his brothers, we see that same thing in Christ. We see, secondly, in Joseph's life, the outpouring of grace and a continual confidence in God's good plan. Joseph's life was filled with adversity. I wonder if Joseph recognized what was going to happen to him. I mean, he has these dreams. I'm going to be king of my brothers. I'm going to rule over my parents even. And so he may be thinking, what does that look like? Well, prestige and, and, and honor and glory and things are going to be great. And then immediately after he has that promise from God that those things are going to happen, 
He meets adversity. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery. Things start getting better in slavery, and then it all happens over again. He's back in jail again. How was he able to do that? Have you ever wondered how in the world was Joseph able to endure those things, knowing the promises of God that he had to wait for? And the Bible tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. And what did he show Joseph? Steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever Joseph did, who made it succeed? The Lord. What is amazing here is the paradoxical way in which God works among his people. So that here's Joseph in jail, and yet he is the best prisoner in the whole place. Is it because of how great Joseph is? No. It's because of how great Joseph's God is. The Lord is with him through that. There is a Reality that we need to face and recognize that there, God has given us great promises, has He not? Who here would not wish to depart from this world and be with Christ? That's our great joy. Come, Lord Jesus. And every time I say, come, Lord Jesus, I wait a second, and then He doesn't come. And I'm left to look at my refrigerator that doesn't have ham in it. <laughs> Actually, I think it does have some ham in it. And that's a, that's a silly, silly thing. But we can say, come, Lord Jesus, and we want that consummation to come, and then we're still left to struggle with the things on earth. Health issues, family issues, the pain of lost loved ones, the pain of difficulties, find, you know, relational problems. How can we face those things knowing that God has promised such good to us? And the answer is we have God's presence with us. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Joseph may have not received the love of his brothers, but you know who he never lost the love of? God. God remained steadfast in his love to Joseph. And then we know probably one of the most famous statements in the book of Genesis is that even the bad things that men do to us, our sovereign God takes them and turns them for what? For good. Genesis 50, 20, as he's sitting there talking to his brothers, you meant all this to me for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's amazing here is the perspective that Joseph has here. It's not just a perspective that God did these, allowed these evil things to happen to him so he could be in this exalted state with Pharaoh. Or not even that it's, ex- it's exclusively focused on how he is treating his people, his brothers, so that they would have food. But he says that many people, in that he's including other nations, he's including the Egyptians. God allowed Joseph to face such difficulties so that he could bless other people. And sometimes I think we need to have that perspective in the midst of the adversities and difficulties that we're facing, that God may be using them so that we can bless others. that it can be used for good. So again, finally, we will see how Joseph falls short of who Christ is. Because what ends up happening to Joseph? He dies. And in fact, the beginning of Exodus begins with a sorrowful statement that there was a Pharaoh who arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And so these Israelites who had this favored status in Egypt, they're taken and they are now turned into slaves. So Joseph's reign ends. And in fact, we're going to come and as we look through the rest of the history of Israel, we're going to sort of do a, a, a 30,000 view of that over the next couple weeks. We're going to see good kings and we're going to see bad kings. We're going to see kings like Saul who are selfish and prideful. And we're going to see kings like David who are seeking to follow the Lord and have hearts after God's own heart. But there's one thing that will happen to every single one of those human rulers of Israel. They will all end up what? Dead. Their kingdoms will come to an end. But the great hope of the antitype of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, is that death cannot end his reign. You realize that that is one of the wonderful hopes of, of the resurrection of Christ. You know, we look at, at kingdoms as they come and, and go throughout human history, and a, kingdom's, a king's reign ends at his death. Jesus died, but did his reign end? No! Not even death could hold back the eternal reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will reign forever. And as Luke, as the angel mentioned to Mary, as Luke records of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the great hope. And so while Joseph has so many similarities with who Christ is, we see the great hope that Christ's kingdom never ends. May we today find hope in that kingdom by looking to Christ in faith. May He be our ultimate hope. And as we recognize that, we can face adversity like Joseph did, like Christ did, with certain hope in God's plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Joseph, Father. It is a, a favorite of many. And yet, Father, through it we see that Joseph, as, as amazing as his story is, as, as upright as he was, Lord, as you worked through so many different things in his life, they all pale in comparison to the glory of our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. So thank you, Father, for Joseph life, Joseph's life and how you worked in it to show us our anticipation of who Christ is. May we seek, Father, not to be like Joseph. May we seek to be like Joseph's King, Jesus. Work in our hearts through your Spirit today. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.